I'm also going to write the time I need to be done by up here. Okay. So we are, let me just start with this. Anthony Hokema is an older scholar. He says in his book, The Bible and the Future, written 40 years ago, but it's, it sounds remarkably relevant. The last half of it does. Let me, let me tell you this, this quote. Few questions are as crucial in today's world as that of the meaning of history. After the trauma of the two world wars within one generation, the nightmare of Hitler's Germany and the futility of Vietnam, our generation is crying out for an answer to this question. A leading theologian of our day observes that, quote, our generation is strangled by, here's the relevant part, strangled by fear. Fear for man, for his future, and for the direction in which we are driven against our will and desire. And out of this comes a cry of illumination concerning the meaning of the existence of mankind and concerning the goal to which we are directed. Here's the prescient sentence. It is a cry for an answer to the old question of the meaning of history. Now, it's especially relevant to us. The fear of a bit, of course, is we're, we're in a society riven by fear. But um, the meaning of history, too, and I want to propose today that quite simply but profoundly, the church is, uh, there's, there's so much wrapped in the idea that the church is, Christ and his church are the, in a sense, the meaning of history. So I've titled the sermon, History, a Dressing Room for the Bride. And why am I focusing in on the church Um, What role does she play in Revelation and thus in God's plan for all things until he returns again? Because that's what the book's about. Um, We're moving as house churches into chapters two and three of the book, right? We've we've spent three weeks in chapter one. We spent another week. We started out in chapter two. But in Revelation two and three, we move from this opening and this picture of the risen Christ that John has an encounter with straight into uh, these seven words to these seven churches in, in Asia Minor and Turkey. And um, as we move into these chapters in our house churches um, and, spend, and spend some weeks contemplating um, the role of the church, I want to contemplate her role in history until Christ returns. And I want to propose that God is bringing about his will in the world. He's moving history to its desired end, end excuse me, in and through the church. There is a very real sense in which we can truly say that the church of Christ is, here it is, the church of Christ is the meaning of history and the agent moving it forward toward the climax for which it was created. Okay, let me, now that might sound idolatrous. We can never forget the church is Christ's body. Without him as our head and our vitality, we're nothing. We're nothing. And the book of Revelation is actually set up that way. Let me break this down with a quote um, from a commentary on Revelation by Doug Kelly. He says this, listen to this. He says, before God takes you to the details of world history. Now, pause here. Before God takes you to the details of world history moving forward. Okay, from John's age all the way until Christ returns. That in Revelation is essentially Revelation chapter six all the way to the end of the book. The details of world history from John's age all the way until Christ returns is essentially Revelation six through 22. Okay, but Doug says before God takes you to those details, he first shows you the risen Christ. As as we've talked about in chapter one, he first shows you the risen Christ. He wants that to permeate our understanding of everything that happens. Because Christ has come, he's died in our place, he's risen again, all these things can happen. But when he does that, he first shows you the risen Christ. And in that light, Doug says, 
He makes you go by way of the Christian church. That's the next step we have. After Revelation 1, what does John put in the book? Revelation 2 and 3, according to the design of God. The clue to world history is that the most important thing, I want you all to get this. If you're taking notes, this is a good sentence to write down. If you're not, totally fine. The clue to world history is that the most important thing God is ever doing at any stage in history is preparing his church for what he wants it to be. Okay? In other words, all the stuff in Revelation, in this, and therefore in world history until Christ returns, happens because of what Christ has done and who he is through his church. And his church is the one he's working on, and his church is the one through whom the world hears about who he is and what he's done. And that is why, that is the purpose of history, and that is why history moves forward. So I want to kind of make that case a little bit as we move forward. Because what am I doing here? House churches, we're just moving passage by passage through Revelation. We're taking our time. We're not in a rush. Here, I want to give you, you know, I get one chance a month. So I'm going to give you maybe 12, 11 to 12 this year, Holy Week, so 11. Theological sort of grids for being able to better hang our march through Revelation on, okay? So this is one of them. What is the purpose of the church? We're here in that church section in Revelation. The Shepherd of Hermas, it's one of the church's earliest writings. It's a minor writing. It's a bit eccentric. But in the Shepherd of Hermas, the author says the world exists for the church. It's a pretty striking statement. Doug Kelly comments, it does not mean that the world is unimportant, but that the world is serving a higher purpose that the world itself doesn't even know about. And we're the ones who get to shine a light on what that world doesn't know about and preeminently on Christ, right? And we'll talk about that toward the end. Um, So if you look at the last two chapters of the book of Revelation and thus of the Bible, what do they tell us about? What are the last two books? I mean, there's a lot we could say. The last two chapters of the book of Revelation. It was the last it was the last section that Nathaniel read, Revelation 19. What do they tell us about? What do they feature? Jesus. Yes. Certainly the risen Christ. Exactly. They kind of they kind of their book amazingly, but on purpose, and it makes a point, Start finishes the way it starts, with Christ, but not Christ alone, and his bride, right? They tell us about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Doug Kelly says, that is a way of saying that all of history, again, get this, all of history is a preparation for the greatest event of history. It is as if the rest of history is a dressing room for the bride, so let me just briefly explain through these four passages Nathaniel mentioned, just touch on each of them like a, like a, like a rock across water. Um, in Revelation 1, I kind of picked four passages that sort, of, that sort of spread throughout the entire book of Revelation. Revelation 1, Nathaniel read from that passage, and what we get is we get this picture of who Christ is and what he's done. He has literally taken what separated us from God in God's holiness and justice upon himself as a sin sacrifice. And then he paid the price for sin. He destroyed thereby sin and death. He, he paid for sin. He destroyed death and the work of the devil. And he took hell for anyone who comes to him. And he rose victorious on the third day. He's alive. He's alive. He's the conquering king. 
and, and we're his body, the church. And, and, and the book says, right, he says, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and hell or Hades. And then he says this, write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. In other words, that's the key to the book is because of what I've done and who I am, the rest of history can be written. Now, what is right after? That's literally the last there's one more verse after that, but it's about the church in, in chapter one. What is the next two chapters in Revelation after, after what Christ says right there, after what he says he's done? Revelation two and three are where we are right now as a church in our house churches. The next thing after that is the church. Again, the, the church is the one that Christ speaks to. It's the one that he's working on. It's the one that he's with. It's the one that he's sanctifying. It's the one he loves and has given himself to. And it's the one through whom, think about the structure of the book, Revelation 1, Jesus, the risen Christ. And then you have the church, this filter, Revelation 2 and 3. He's with us. He cares about us. He's speaking a personal word to each of us, which we'll get to in a sec. And then after that is the rest of world history and the rest of the world seen until Christ returns. In other words, we are the ones through whom the message of the risen Christ passes. Without us, without the church, the world doesn't hear that message. Isn't that amazing that God, he, God could have not chosen the church to get the message out of the fact that he has done everything necessary to save us, to bring us to himself and to make all things new. But for some reason he has chosen for the world not to hear that message, but by the church. That is astonishing. So our mission in proclaiming that gospel is a huge reason for our existence. It's what we do. It's who we are. And then Revelation 5 that Nathaniel read, it's kind of the same thing. Let me just read verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, and this is the church, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Again, Jesus, because of what you've done and who you are, because you are the God man and you've reconciled God and man through your life and your death in our place on the cross. And you've risen victorious from the grave. Because of that, you can open the book that was perfectly sealed. It was God's plan for the rest of history. You can open it and make it happen because of your victory. So you're worthy to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood. Why are you worthy? For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people. You bought them for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests. We're not just saved. We think of the cross. We think of, we think of Jesus. And a lot of times the first word that comes to mind is salvation. Glory to be to God. But that's kind of where we stop sometimes. What we hear over and over in Revelation is that we have been made a kingdom to reign. And what is the way that we are kings? We've made, been made a kingdom and priests to our God. We, our, the kingdom of God goes forth as we who are made into a kingdom by what he's done. What does a priest do? We reconcile guilty people to a holy God by bringing them to Jesus Christ and telling them, the gospel. We priests bring the guilty into the presence of God, not in judgment, but something so that, and that happens by something being judged by something that doesn't have any blemish being judged in their place. So they can go and be with God. That is Jesus. That is what we do. And that is how the kingdom of God grows and manifests in our life in us, in us for sure. As that penny drops more and more. And then through us, through our lives and our words, as we go out into this world as a kingdom of priests, um, and they shall reign on earth. So, so literally, again, that's Revelation 5, which is kind of like the end of the real start of the book in a sense. And I'll get to that when I preach that section. 
But then from that section on, chapter 6 onward, is the rest of human history. And, and again, it passes through the church because of Christ's work. We're made a kingdom of priests to go tell the world about that message. And the rest of history unfolds from there. Revelation 12, this is the third passage Nathaniel read. Where positionally is Revelation 12 in the Bible? Think about how many chapters it has. I heard Cheryl say, in the middle. And she's right. It's an, and it's literally, it's more than just like kind of in the middle. I think I've said this before, but there are seven. I'm going to preach in another sermon or in your notes in the house church, whatever. There are, there are seven. There are a lot of ways to break up Revelation. But there are pretty clearly um, seven segments that all, and to my, this is the way I'm going to teach it. Again, it's a hard book, so there could be other ways to understand it. But there are seven episodes that are the same episode told differently with increasing intensity each time. So, and those episodes are the time from Christ's first coming until his second coming. And that's told seven times in the book. Guess what time is the fourth time? Three before it and three after it. Right here. Revelation chapter 12. It's literally dead center in the, in the group of sevens. It's the middle one. And what happens in that book but that we are told not just about the fact that of old Satan fell from heaven, but we are told through what Jesus Christ has done, that Christ, through his coming to earth to rescue us, through living the life that we can't live but should, and dying the death that we deserve to die on the cross, and taking our sin upon himself and absorbing the wrath of God in our place, being our shield. And then rising from the dead, showing that he was that he paid the price that he paid was sufficient for all sinners who come to him. No sin is too great. Right. Through his work, his victorious work, Satan was thrown down. He was no longer allowed to deceive the nations. And the the chorus from the church, from the saints is now the salvation after Satan has been thrown down, the deceiver of the whole world because of what you've done, Jesus. Now the salvation, the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down. Is he still at work in the world? Yes, but he can no longer deceive nations. His, there's a sense in which his head, Jesus Christ's foot is on Satan's head and it has been crushed and the decisive victory has been won at the cross. That's what Revelation literally centers on, right? Um, it's been thrown down who accuses them night and day before our God and they have, this is talking about us, verse 11, and they have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. And that was a prophecy spoken about the church. It was an encouragement given to the church and it took root and it had good effect because we know from church history that's exactly what happened. They laid their lives down. They knew they'd already been secured. They couldn't die the second death. Their master had gone before them and laid his life down and so did they. Um, giving testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done and that he's the, com- that he's the king that's come to save us and to make us to, to make all things new. And in laying their lives down, the kingdom of God went forth. And it's still happening today. The church is always growing on the edges. It's always growing where the church is in pain, where the church is being oppressed and persecuted. Um, and that's happening even today. Um, and so this passage goes on to say that the dragon tried to kill the son of the woman, Jesus. But failing that, who does he go after? If you remember from the, or if you look at the text that they read, he goes after Jesus, the son of the, this woman. But then after that, who does he? He can't. He didn't kill Jesus. Well, he did on the cross, but Jesus rose. And Jesus actually used that to, you know, judo chop. Jesus actually used that to defeat Satan, to defeat death, to to pay for sin 
So after he couldn't, he, Jesus rose and he's reigning now and he's done this amazing work. Who does Satan go after next? The rest, of the, the rest of the children of the woman. That's us. That's the church. We are united vitally to Jesus, our Savior. We are his body. That's why the church continues to exist despite our miserable performance over the past 2,000 years. Because Jesus is our head and that's why we continue to thrive even through death and especially through death and through suffering, right? Um, so history is a war between the dragon and the children of God. Guess who wins? But still in Revelation, we see over and over again, you'll see this and I'll get to this over and over in the, two, in the chapters two and three to the seven churches. Uh, blessed is he who overcomes, who overcomes. It, ours is a fight. It is for us to fight. But we have a captain who has won the decisive victory. We are assured of victory. But still we're called not to sit back on our laurels, but to fight. And a huge part of that is, 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 is bearing testimony of Christ. Um, and then finally, Revelation 19, most briefly, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, it's not just Jesus hanging out by himself. He could have. But he chose to, he's, he's chosen, the whole point of history is for the father, and I'm going to end with this, to make a bride ready for his son. And Jesus takes that bride to himself, and we are together in soul-satisfying um, union and life and joy. All who come to Christ, us, Christ's body forever, by faith. Um, so... This is the vision of where we're headed, and, and this understanding of the part, uh, this is our understanding of the part we have to play in the world, um, and we see that largely by looking at the end of Revelation. But again, what do we see in the beginning? Two things. We see the church as the conduit of Christ's victory on the cross and through his resurrection. We are the conduit of that, of Jesus to a dying world. Um, but we also see the church in these local situations in chapters two and three. We're going to spend in-house churches weeks on them, so... Uh, I'm not going to belabor them, but just to give you a bit of groundwork as we move into the second point here. Um, he, Jesus is basically saying, here's what you're doing well. There's a, there's a breakdown, and we've looked at this last week for each of the letters to the churches. Here's what you're doing well. Great job. Here's where you're sliding and sinning. He calls us to repent, and here's what I have in store for you. Persevere. He offers a reward and a vision. So moving into this next section here, um, all of history is, is, is a uh, preparation for the bride. It's a dressing room, as it were. All of history for the bride. But also, secondly, this cosmic fight and massive historical movement, it's being played out in our daily lives. It's being played out in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. Um, there are lots of sevens in the book. I've already mentioned one of them. Um, also, so this is the first of the sevens. There are seven seals on the book in revelation five that christ opens and he sets that's world history he sets it moving forward because of what he's done then from the seals from one of the last seals the trumpets come there are seven trumpets and then after the seven trumpets there are seven any revelation people bowls i knew law would get it okay there are seven bowls this is the first of four sevens, the seven churches in the seven and four. They're both numbers of completion. All right. So and that essentially those bowls take us almost to the end of the essentially to the end of the book. Um, and then the return of Christ and the new creation where your bankers is evil. Um, so. This these Revelation two and three give us the book's audience and purpose. It is for and it is to the church, not just a lot of times you think of letters to the church in Revelation. What do you think of what what part of Revelation? Okay, Laodicea, 
namely chapters 2 and 3. But actually, it's very clear when you, when you read chapter 1 more carefully, this is all one letter to the church. Okay, so these are particular words to these churches, but they're lo- to local churches, and through those local churches, they're to us. They're to us, because 7 is a number of fullness. It's to the whole church. And um, one, Eugene Peterson, a commentator, says somewhere that it's encouraging when you read them because they're really, they could be any seven churches in history, really. They're, they're going through a lot of the same things we are. There are, things, there are things that are worthy of praise. There are things they need to work on where they're sliding. We looked at Ephesians, the Ephesian church last week. And there are things that he's saying, here's, here's how in particular I'm going to reward you. Persevere. Overcome. I'm with you. I have overcome. Fight. Um, this, if you think about the book as a whole, again, what am I trying to do? I'm not trying to explain these seven churches to you. We, I'm just trying to give you a sort of orientation as we move through them as house churches, right? Um, think about the book without these. Honestly, I've always kind of skipped past. Not skipped. Okay. When I read the book, I don't skip them, but I kind of want to um, because there are always two reasons. They were always preached exclusively. And it's like you'd hear Revelation 1, 2, and 3 preached in a church, and then they, that's it. It's like, is, that, is it just three chapters? Are we, do we have any more here? Um, and then also, there's a, they have a different quality to them than the rest of the book, don't they? What, think about the book of Revelation without these. What, what is it like? Think about it with them. These, these ground the book. These ground the book. It's written to the church. World history is playing out through the church. We are Christ's body on earth. We get to expand his kingdom by being priests and telling people about what he's done and who he is. Um, it's very real. It's very nitty gritty. It's granular. It's about what the sins these churches are struggling with in the cities that they're in. And that the sins that they're struggling with take on, scholars will tell us, the sins they're struggling with each take on the cities that they live in. Imagine that. They're absorbing the culture. And I'll, I'll touch on that maybe a little more just at the end here. Um, that's a warning to us, right? We need to be lights who are leading culture, not absorbing it and letting culture lead us, right? And, and again, I'll, I'll mention that at the end here. But these, these two chapters really ground the book. I think it's Peterson again that says that these chapters check our impulses toward romanticism and individualism. Without these chapters, you could think Revelation, which is all about the dragon and the, the cosmic fight, which it is, and about what Christ has done, and kind of think, okay, I just got to focus on Jesus myself, move forward. No, no, this is for the church. We are called to be a body. We are called to be a corporate body to share life together, especially in this age right now. There's so many Christians that just think they can kind of go it alone with Jesus. These militate, these chapters militate against that kind of mentality. And there is a cosmic war going on, but it goes through the church. This filter that you have to pass through from Christ to the rest of world history, right? Um, Okay, Graham Goldsworthy says this. He says, Christ's mopping up campaign against Satan is actually marvelous marvelous to relate being worked out in the frontline trenches of local church evangelism, pastoral care, teaching and preaching. It's being worked out in the Christian home as children are instructed in their covenant privileges and taught the meaning of faith in the doing and dying of Christ. And let me add, it's being worked out in the workplace. It's being worked out in our neighborhoods. Okay. Um, Christians are not onlookers while a cosmic conflict rages, Goldworthy goes on to say, in spiritual realms, but rather we are participants. And think about Ephesians 6, the end of the book, right? The end of that letter of Paul, 6.10 and following. It's a spiritual, hey, brothers and sisters, Paul says, our fight is not what we see. 
Don't be deceived by that. It's being controlled by spiritual verities that are very real but unseen. The principalities, the powers. That is what is, and Revelation pulls back a curtain to show us that. And to show us that actually Christ is, has already conquered. He's reigning on the throne. And everything, all his victory plays out through us. Contrary to what we see, especially when we're suffering. Especially when we're bearing testimony to Christ, which brings on suffering a lot of times. Even if it's being snubbed by a coworker or a neighbor. That's real. Christ is building his kingdom through that. That's what's really happening. Satan's being vanquished. That's what's really happening. We're part of this cosmic drama while we're checking out our crabgrass and talking to our neighbor and doing Excel spreadsheets. At the, yeah, and finally getting some callbacks when I mention crabgrass and Excel spreadsheets. Okay. All right. Um, again, just to remind you that I'm not an idolatrist. I am idolatrist in my sin every day. But here in this sermon... There is no church without Christ, right? As often as I say the church is the meaning of history, I'm overemphasizing to make a point. Revelation starts not with the church, but Jesus. He is, we are his body. We are his bride. We are vitally united to him. He is our head. We're his body. Um, So he says, write therefore what you've seen, what is, what is to come, and send it to the seven churches among whom he walks. Um, the first thing in Revelation, just a couple sort of bits in these chapters, and then uh, we'll move on to the last point here. Um, and that is that the first thing he says to each of the churches is, look at me. Look at me. Um, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus amidst all the things going on in our lives and all the things we could be doing as a church Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus as individual members and as a corporate church is the number one thing. It's the first thing that he says to all of us. It's the order of first importance. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. You know, as we go to this covenant member meeting in a bit, um, just we're going to hand out multiply packets. And it's really just a, a tool to help you walk with the Lord, to help you pray for the lost, to help you spend time with him and bring others into that and have a bit of a corporate um, journey together with, with Jesus. And um, so much of that is about just time with him. We can get going so fast, but the first and most important thing is to spend time fixating on beautiful Jesus, all-powerful Jesus who gave up all of his privileges to come rescue us. And being shaped by that vision and being shaped by the reality of who he is as a church. That is our number one privilege and responsibility. And it makes me think of uh, a mentor of mine. Again, the guy that, that I've been working under the past two weeks, Tuesday, Thursday, at, at Woods Edge in the Woodlands. I was there at a staff meeting. Every staff meeting I go to, he says the same thing. He said it this past Tuesday. Staff, you are paid to spend time with Jesus. Their first value is love Jesus. And as we go, we'll, we'll talk about our vision, our new vision frame. It's still in process, but we want you all to speak into it. But at the, at the member meeting... Um, but it's love. We, we toyed around, follow Jesus, love Jesus. It's probably going to be one or two, but I prefer love because it's what we're called to do as a people. And it's not just an individual thing. It's as a, as a body to love. And as we love one another and as we love the least of these, what are we doing? We're loving Jesus, fixating on him, letting his love pour out from us to one another and to the lost and to the lowly and the poor. Um, so 
loving Jesus, Jeff says, hey, loving Jesus is what we pay you for. Like, spend time with him. It's what we pay you for. It's what we want you to do. You can do everything else, right? All the programs, get all your Excel spreadsheets done, all the stuff, all the admin. It's all so important. The more I'm a pastor, the more thankful I am for those gifted in admin. But everyone from the pastor to the person in the office doing, doing the back office stuff, we pay you to spend time with Jesus. It's the number one thing. Everything else comes from that. If you shortchange that, things are going to dry up. So I want to encourage you in that. It's what he says to the churches. Um, he said, the other thing he says is he always says to the churches, I know. Remember his eyes of fire in Revelation 1? He sees past appearances. Most of our lives are spent, unfortunately, I try not to, but it's an impulse in my flesh. Put up an appearance. It's an artifice. I'm insecure. I don't want people to know the real me. What, what if they knew? Jesus sees past all that, thank God, down to what really is. And he addresses what really is. But he never points it out without the ability to take it out, to carve it out, to cut it out. So that we can live. Because those things keep us from him. Um, he reveals and he heals his church in Revelation 2 and 3. That's from Eugene Peterson. We also see gener- degeneration is occurring in, in almost all these seven churches. And again, they're just sort of a cross-section of any, any church throughout history. And all these churches are about a generation and a half, two generations past when they were planted. And already, degeneration is setting in. Uh, what is, we've, we've only looked at the church of Ep- to Ephesus. And the church to Ephesus, the main thing he says, he said, you're doing everything right. Your theology is perfect. You're even pure ethically and you're persevering but this i have against you and it's literally in the middle of the address so it's central you've lost your first love to jesus the other stuff matters but i almost said none of the rest matters if we lose that the beating heart of our faith he wants he's jealous he wants our love thank god um and again, these words are to the persecuted church largely. They're words of conviction, but also of deep comfort, encouragement, and hope. Um, and it's because he cares for us, right? Like a good surgeon. In Hebrews 12, God says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. You could be going through discipline right now, friend. I want this to encourage you. Don't regard it lightly, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Um, there's, a, there's a Rocky Five for Rocky aficionados. I hope we have a few in here. Just pump your fist up in the air if you are. Yes. Um, nothing compares to the original, of course. But I will say Rocky, what was the new, newer one that came out? Creed. That's a good one. The newer series is good. Rocky Five, not as much for aficionados. But there is this gnarly street fight with Tommy Gunn toward the end. And I love it. I actually stood up in eighth grade. This dates me. I was in eighth grade when it came out in the theaters. And I stood up on the front row. We were like on the front row, you know, doing that. And I stood up and I was like, Adrian, or, you know, or something like that. They're like, sit down. Uh, but Rocky, he's in no gloves. Street fight. He's like, you put him down. Why don't you try taking me down? And uh, don't do it, Rocky. So he goes out, and it's just this fisticuffs on the street, street brawl. Tommy was a street fighter. Rocky was a street fighter. Let's go. And so um, he, uh, he's on the ground, cheap shots by Tommy. He's literally kind of about to, like, die because he's, he's old. He's got all these problem, health problems. And uh, he's kind of having these 
hallucinations and these memories are scrolling through his head as he's sitting there on the pavement and people are yelling at him, get up, get up. And he sees one of the things that gets him up. He sees Mickey, his old, his old trainer from Rocky one and two. He's like, get up, get up you. And there are kids in here, so I can't say what Mickey says, but you son of a gun, you know, get up, you son of a gun. Right. Hey, what, what does he say? Cause Mickey loves you. Right? Mickey loves you. And that's kind of, you're never going to forget this now, whether or not it's an appropriate application. It's kind of what Jesus is saying in a less salty version, but, but more terrifying, right? Get up. Get up. Because I love you. Because I laid my life down for you. And that beautiful verse in Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us, and it's a participle, it's ongoing to him who literally in the Greek to him who is loving us. He's loving you now as much as he ever loved you hanging on that cross for you. Do you know that we have God's word on that to him who is loving you and has past tense freed you from your sins by his blood. That's the price he paid. You're free. He's loving you. So get up and fight. And that's the word that we have. That's the word that we have. Um, and we are told that um, we are, the church is the light of the world. But we are told, we see this in Ephesians, in the Ephesian church last week, that our lampstand, our light, our witness to the world, really the reason we are here, how history moves forward, can be removed. It can be removed if that love, if that love for God fades our witness to the world will be gone. That is our witness. Our love for Jesus because of his first love for us when we hated him and for one another. It doesn't mean your salvation will be removed. That's not what it means. Our salvation depends on his love, thank God. Oh, yes, it does. Like Justin was kind of saying earlier, not on ours. Not on ours. Our love is a response and he, he puts that love in us and calls us to himself. But our witness will go if our love goes. And so, um, Doug Kelly, again, I quoted him a bunch at the beginning. He says this. He says, um, in the Christian church, God's, God does not shine his saving light, delight directly on unbelievers. I had never thought about that. Rather, he's chosen to shine his light on unbelievers through the lives of Christians. Isn't that amazing? Kind of like I talked about earlier. We are the lampstand. Jesus is the light of the world, but how does he choose? He could just go straight to the lost. He goes through his church, his body. For us to shine the light of Jesus Christ, his beauty and his love and his forgiveness and the freedom he brings um, to, to, this, to this world. Um, again, we're called, each of the seven churches is called to overcome. Uh, what, is, what is tacit in this charge is that we will suffer for Jesus. Again, the Christian life is a fight. Um, but it's a fight because of what he's done, because he's the key master. He holds the keys to death and hell, and he set us free. Um, this, this ESV Bible note is worth, worth quoting. Victory is the objective in a Christian spiritual warfare. The Lion of Judah conquered as a slain lamb, redeeming people for God from every nation. Believers who hold their test, to their testimony conquer the dragon and the beast. I had a wonderful text that I received this morning from a brother that really stated that well. I was going to, for the first time in my life, read, uh, read a text from my phone. I'm not going to do it. Um, and again, like I said, part of our overcoming is 
overcoming sin, he's, he's vanquished it. It no longer holds us down. We're free from it, but we have to fight every day against it. Um, but it's also, um, it's not just resisting sin, but it's resisting the evil of the culture that surrounds us while being what? How, how does a light shine? Where does a light, does a light shine brightly where it's really well lit? No, it shines brightly. My friend told a story about being in a cave and everyone turned off their lights as any good cave leader person. That's their official title. We'll have everyone turn their lights off when you're three miles underground, right? In the bowels of the earth. Because you just are stunned by the amount of darkness. It's totally disorienting. Johnny Cash apparently went to a cave like that to die. But that's where God saved him, actually. God spoke to him. Speaking of God speaks and brought him out of that cave. Amazing. I just learned that. Um, but in that kind of darkness, that's where I think about a torch where there's absolutely no light. It's so bright. We are called to enter into all the very bowels of everything going on in this world so that the light might shine. And yet we're called not to be of this world, not to let the culture lead us and change us and affect us, but to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the light of the world and his light burning in us brightly. I think again about the old, the old illustration of we're not to be thermometers. I did not need a thermometer the past three days in my house. I did not need a thermometer. I needed a thermostat. I needed a thermostat and I forgot to, I turned the, in the kid's wing, I, I turned it off yesterday when it was hot and I forgot, <laughs> woke up this morning at five or whatever and went in. I was like, it's chilly. Ooh, it's 60, 60 degrees in our house. I turned the thermostat back on. Christians are called to be light of the world, not absorbing culture, but in the culture and setting the temperature, changing the temperature. Um, leading the culture, not just, not just saying, well, here's where it is because we're just like they are, right? Um, okay, so let me, let me say one thing about the Ukrainian church and then close with just two quick sort of metaphor stories very fast. Um, we are called to follow the lamb, to suffer with him as he did. Paul says, I read it in my quiet time this morning, I, in Colossians, right? I fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Amazing verse, amazing honor to be given that. That is where our light shines the brightest. See, people seeing Christians suffer well. People seeing us love one another well. People seeing us love the least of these well. Um, I'm just hearing about Ukrainians and they're in, you know, Russia's amassed 150 plus thousand troops on the border. Nobody believes her when she says we're not gonna be praying that she wouldn't attack. But you, interviews are being done by these Christian news, or, news organizations with pastors, with Christians who are like, do we stay? We've been here 22 years ministering to the Ukrainians. Do we go? And it's really emotional. This guy, I mean, just do we, I have to leave most of this stuff behind. This is my daughter when she was one. It's our picture on the wall. She's 22 now. Do, do I, if I go, I leave that, you know, and I'm leaving these dear people. But anyway, the short of it is that the Ukrainians by and large, the Ukrainian church is by and large saying, no, 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 no. We're staying. Suffering is what we do. It's what Christ called us to. It's what he came here to do. It's what our life's about, and it's how our witness shines. We're staying. This is what he's called us to. It's nothing new, right? And it's just like, oh, I mean, man, they get it. The early church got it in part because of this message, this encouragement to them. You're not losing. You're winning. Christ is your captain, and he's overcome death and alien. He's the key master. You can lay it all down. So beautiful. So beautiful. Uh, and, then he's, and then that's not the end, right? And that's what I'll finish with. He's going to make all things new. He's going to bring us to himself. So I had um, 
two quick stories to a close. I had a, uh, a, not a friend, just an acquaintance that's at this other church. I just met him for the first time. We were all praying for each other. We were all sort of listening. Justin would have loved it. We were listening for what the Lord might be saying to one another and to the church. And one of the guys shared this beautiful story. He said, I see this picture of a father sending out his beloved son to a, a person who's just broken down. They are so sad. They are all curved in on themselves. They have lost hope. They are, their life is a mess. And they're full of shame and hopelessness. And he's going to put his hand on those people, the son is, and bring them to the father. Bring them to the father. And he goes one by one out to these people. And he brings these broken people to the father. And the father sheds, just brings them into his arms and sheds his love abroad all over them. You're home, son. I love you. Isn't that a wonderful picture of the gospel? That one picture right there, it's almost, it's almost like the prodigal son. It's a bit different in its detail. But that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. The son sent by the father to bring broken, sinful people to the father's arms. It's also what he commissions us to do. To go get people. To bring them to the father in the name of Jesus. That's what, that's what we get to do. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, to sort of tie everything up I'm trying to say, that's, that's what, that, that, us doing that, fixing our eyes on Jesus and doing that with the lost is driving history forward. And I actually had a section where I wanted to show you from the start of the early church all the way through the medieval ages, through the Reformation, through the, uh, through the Enlightenment, uh, up to present day, how actually the church and the revival of the church has been driving history. But I left it out, thank God, for sake of time. Um, Another lesson. And then lastly, again, to look ahead, the father is preparing a bride for his son. This is the point of history. This is what we see in the book of Revelation. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. He's with us. He's taking us somewhere good. He's done everything necessary for us to, to have life in him now and to share that with a, with a lost world. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this people, this church, your body. We got as many problems as any of those churches that you talk to, but you're not, you care about them and you love us and you're encouraging us and you're with us and you're pointing those things out because you care about them and you're saying, you guys have a part to play with the church in Houston and around the world that is driving history forward. Go get my sons and daughters. We bless you. We pray that you would continue Holy Spirit to lead us in worship. Come and be among us. In Jesus' name.